Good morning, everyone. I see some faces that are new to me, and so I assume that my face may be new to some of you this morning. Uh, my name is Preston Sharp, and I have a lot of connections around here. <laughs> my parents are uh, Father Brent and Mother Janice Sharp, and uh, I've been part of Sanctuary for many years, but over the past 10 years, I have planted and pastored a church in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, Sacrament Church. That's where I am now, and uh, part of the diocese and connected here. So I'm so glad for the opportunity for us to be together today that I get to be here. It's always a joy to be in your presence and to be around you, to be with this wonderful community. I'll echo what Deacon Allie said and say Merry Christmas. We are still indeed in this season of Christmas. This is a season of feasting, of celebration, of basking in the reality of the incarnation because Christmas is a big deal. It needs more than just one day. We celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, that God has chosen to dwell with us, not for selfish reasons, as was often said of the pagan gods who were to do business with humanity from time to time. No, but because he loves us. Christmas is a big deal. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers from the fourth century, says of the meaning of Christmas, the ancient slavery is ended, the devil confounded, the demons take flight, the power of death is broken, paradise is unlocked, the curse is taken away, sin is removed from us, error is driven out, truth has been brought back, the speech of kindliness diffused and spreads on every side. A heavenly way of life has been implanted on the earth, angels communicate with men without fear, and men now hold speech with angels. So that's all. That's all it is. No, Christmas is a big deal. And our readings today that I'm going to focus on speak on the muchness of Christmas. Some of you may know that in addition to our gospel reading each Sunday, there are also some other readings for us to ponder that go along with the gospel reading. So I'm quickly here in just a moment going to look at each of these readings and what they have to speak to us in this season of feasting, this season of Christmas. We are to gather together this week the stuff that often gets lost in the busyness of Christmas. We're to gather together the overflowing goodness of Christmas. Now, let me say this from the outset. This doesn't mean that we need to feel the joy of Christmas today. The calling of the Christian is to feast. The command to the Christian is not to feel a certain kind of way. In this life, we're going to feel and experience all kinds of different things, ups and downs, ebbs and flows, good and bad, side by side. It's appropriate to sit with those feelings, to acknowledge them, and also to know that the story moves forward in the midst of all of those different feelings. <laughs> the day after Christmas, I turned 40 years old. My parents and siblings got together and they celebrated me big. They made a video of people saying all sorts of nice things to me and about me, and it was truly one of the best days of my life. And then at the end of the night, after a party and a movie, traveling back to my parents' house with my brother, my car was struck in the side, and my car was totaled. Now, thankfully, I'm okay. My brother is okay. The other driver was okay. 
and cars can be replaced. But talk about emotions side by side. <laughs> um, the apprehension that I had of getting older, 40 feels like a big deal. The joy of a true meaningful celebration, the richness of that, followed by instant fear and then grief of an albeit replaceable loss, followed by the love and support of family and friends, all within a pretty short span of time. But this is life, all of life. We're not called to feel a certain way. We are invited to live in a certain pattern. Just as birthdays keep coming regardless of how we feel about them, <laughs> the story of God moves forward in the midst of the ebbs and flows of the human experience. So this Christmas good news today is no matter how you feel today, God still speaks good news to you. In our Old Testament reading today, it comes from Isaiah 61, 10 through 62, 3. And the prophet proclaims good news. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Hebrew poetry is really interesting. What often happens is there's one line of a reading and it ends with an important concept, an important word. And then there's a second line of the reading that says something very similar and it ends with like a synonym of that first line, the word in the first line. It's like kind of like the same thing, but there's a twist. It adds another dimension. It adds another layer to it. So righteousness and salvation are synonyms here. He's clothed me with the garments of salvation and he covered me with the robe of righteousness. Salvation and righteousness go together. It's like repetition, but with a twist. Salvation has this concept of rescue. God rescues us. Righteousness is like faithfulness or right standing. God has brought both salvation and righteousness. The people of God are free heirs of God's lavish grace. This is God's action on their behalf. Now, I know we come from a variety of different traditions here. Those of you who are raised Christian may come from all different denominational backgrounds. Some Christian traditions tend to emphasize salvation. Others emphasize righteousness. We ought to emphasize both. If we say that we're righteous, right? That others should watch us and emulate what we do because we are so faithful. We're so righteous. We embody righteousness. Well, we've emphasized righteousness without salvation. On the other hand, if we say it doesn't really matter how we live in this life, all that's important is that we're saved. We've emphasized salvation <laughs> without righteousness. But the prophet says the two must go together. Both come from God. I think we're all so aware of the things from which we need rescue in our lives. Those things in which we're often trapped. What are those things for you? A pattern of thinking, an inappropriate habit, a way of responding to pain. Hear the good news today. You are liberated. You may not feel that way now, but you are not alone and the means of your freedom is here. Likewise, we are all so aware of the ways in which we are unfaithful. We let other people down. We let ourselves down. We can never quite do fully what we're supposed to do. 
hear the good news today. Where you have lacked faithfulness, God is faithful on your behalf. He has provided both the rescue from our exile to sin and death, as well as the faithfulness that we lacked. We didn't save ourselves and any work of faithfulness that comes from us is really because of his faithfulness. Because of this, the prophet says, righteousness and praise spring forth before the nations. Because of what God has done in salvation and righteousness, they come out of us. (laughs) They spring before the nations. Then the prophet says, this new thing that's happening is so dramatic, even your old labels won't fit anymore. The old ways you identified yourself, the things that you called yourself, they won't fit anymore. Indeed, the names of God's people don't even fit anymore. So God, therefore, has changed their name, verse 2 says. There's an exchange. He's given them one thing for another thing. Now, today, we don't typically name our children for the name's literal meaning anymore. (laughs) We don't do that very often. We tend to name our kids for what sounds cute or fun or how the name sounds to the ear or what we think it might sound like in the next generation. But in the ancient Hebrew world, a name carried a person's meaning. And God is saying he will change Israel's name. This is an identity shift. Because of what God is doing, God's people are saved. God's people are made righteous. God's people see their identity redeemed and they receive a new name. In fact, in the early Christian tradition, a child was named when they were presented for baptism. That's why even our liturgies today include the announcement of the child's name. This is their name that they have been given. I wonder if you've ever been asked, what is your Christian name? (laughs) Have you heard this? They're referring to your first name, what you're called. But that terminology goes back to the Christian tradition of a child being named and receiving their identity in Christ at baptism. The good news of Christmas is God is so good. It requires a new name, a new identity. The ways the world defines you, they don't work anymore. The things you call yourself, the way you view yourself, the things your parents and teachers said about you that haunt you to this day, they don't work anymore. Because God has made his home with you and with me. Salvation and righteousness spring forth. Our Galatians reading from Galatians 3, 23 through 25 continues with this idea. Paul is saying, not only have we received a new name, we've been adopted into a new family. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. Now, Paul is writing in the midst of the first major controversy in the early church. For the first time, Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish, have been welcomed into the church. But there are some groups that aren't comfortable with this. Some groups are saying that the Gentiles need to convert to Judaism in order to be part of the family of God. And Paul says clearly that because of Jesus, Gentiles are welcomed just as they are. Have you ever wondered why Jesus was given the name Jesus? There were a bunch of Jesuses living in the first century Palestine. (laughs) That was a common name. Shouldn't he have a name that's more unique, 
zesty, right? Then stand out among the crowd. Yet Paul says in his letter to the Philippians that this ordinary name, Jesus, has become the name that is above every name. Some of the great writers of the church explicated this idea that Jesus takes on our names, takes on our humanity in solidarity with our humanity, links arms with us, taking on our names, and then he shared his name with us. So in some way, he takes our name, our identity, and he gives it back, but it's now his name. St. Ephraim wrote this wonderful hymn, Merciful is the Lord who has put on our names even to the point of humbling himself and being depicted as a mustard seed. He has given to us his names. He has taken from us our names. His names have made us great. Our names have made him small. Blessed is the one who has spread your good name over his own name and adorned his own names with your name. In the same way, because of Jesus, the father has adopted new children into his family. There is some thought that the early church may have called the Lord's prayer that we pray each week, the Abba prayer, the father prayer, the daddy prayer. In much of ancient paganism, people would pray, would make prayers and petitions to gods who were seen as distant, vague, far away, not well known but they knew about them that they were capricious and they were probably malevolent. They didn't have your best interest in mind. For example, if there was a sailor going to sea, before he embarked on the voyage, he would probably stop at Poseidon's temple, the God of the sea, and pray for a safe voyage, offering a sacrifice. But in the back of his mind, he would still fear as he stepped out on the journey that maybe there was another sailor who bribed Poseidon to turn the winds in the opposite direction. <laughs> and maybe his sacrifice was better than my sacrifice. Maybe my sacrifice wasn't enough. Maybe it was blemished, even though I tried really hard to get it right. Sometimes we think about prayer and our relationship with God this way. I'm gonna throw something up in the cosmos and just see if it sticks, right? superstitious. Prayer involves, devolves for us into mere superstition. But the good news of Christmas is God is not distant, not far away. God has drawn near in such a way that we are scandalously part of the family of God. He hears us and he is near to us. And this means when we pray, we're not approaching God, this malevolent deity and we're not hoping to change the will of that malevolent or vengeful God. Rather, we're approaching the God who is our father, who has heard our cry and responded to us and been faithful in the past. The God who has been faithful even when we have not. When our words fail, when our behaviors fail, when our faithfulness fails, he is faithful the God who has promised that one day all will be made right. And then our gospel reading that Deacon Alley read this morning tells the story of Jesus presented in the temple. We're told of Joseph and Mary taking him to present him before the Lord. We're told of the devout man, Simeon, and the prophet Anna. In fact, Luke 2, if you just read that chapter, is a whirlwind of Christmas. <laughs> story after story of what this child will mean, not only to the world, but to each person in the story. By the end of the first two chapters of Luke, all readers have found someone in the story with whom they can identify. 
So we've met earlier an older couple, Zachariah and Elizabeth, surprised to have a child at last. We see the young girl, Mary, even more surprised to have a child so soon. And her husband, Joseph, then coming with her to the temple, offering this prescribed sacrifice. Here we have the old man and woman, Simeon and Anna, waiting their turn to die. And in the waiting, they are praying for the salvation of God's people. Simeon, it says, is led by the spirit to greet Jesus. Luke tells us that he is righteous and devout. He has his eye on the hope of God's redemption. It says he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He longs for the nation's deliverance. But the spirit had told Simeon that his death would not come until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Simeon's words become a hymn. They're set within this song. And this prophecy is this statement of mature faith. Simeon says that he can now die in peace because his eyes have seen the source of life and his name is Jesus. And he has brought him joy even as he is facing death. Simeon's job is done. One of the themes that we see in Christmas and leading into Epiphany is this theme of light. In our Isaiah reading, we hear that the voice of God will not rest until Israel's vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. Simeon says here that the salvation which has come to Jesus is a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. If we think about light, light enters our eyes two different ways. The first way is through a light source, like a light bulb, right? That's how light enters our eyes. That creates light. When this happens, the light travels to your eye and your brain interprets that signal as light. That's what that is. Well, the second way is by reflected light. So if you're looking at an object, the light from somewhere reflects off that thing, that object, and then into your eye. So Simeon says, this thing that's happened, this light that has come is good news for God's people, Israel. In fact, it's their glory. It's what causes them to shine. But this light is also reflected into the world. The whole world has changed. Christ is our source of light. And we perceive that through the eye of our heart. And this changes us. You know, when you get a, a cut or something and it starts to heal, for a while it itches, doesn't it? It's an odd thing. That means it's healing. Or maybe, you know, when you've gone for a run for the first time in a long time and your legs itch, right? It's because capillaries are opening in order to get blood to the right places. When you follow after Jesus, the parts of your life that have not received oxygen for a long time, they start to itch. Following Jesus in that way is uncomfortable. It means demolishing the other structures that prop up our lives. The places that haven't received oxygen are now receiving oxygen. It means you'll need to make some changes, but it means it's healing. If you're convicted of sin, it means that God is working in you. And in this, we're always to resist shame. If you feel convicted about something, something in my life needs to change, it's a sign that God's working in your life. In your life. The light is doing its work. 
But notice this, the light salvation doesn't end with Simeon. It doesn't even end with Israel, with God's people. And the light's impact on you does not end with you. The point of the Christian story is not just, I saw the light. That's part of it. But it also means everything around us looks different because of that light. The systems and structures of our world look different because of the light. Our neighbors look different because of the light. Leonardo da Vinci said, a painter should begin every canvas with a wash of black because all things in nature are dark except where exposed by the light. In the Quaker tradition, there is a saying when you pray for someone that you are holding them to the light. The prayer is that every person's life, every society, every structure would be realigned by the light of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the following from his prison cell. In me, there is darkness, but with you, there is light. I am lonely, but you do not leave me. I am feeble in heart, but with you, there is help. I am restless, but with you, there is peace. In me, there is bitterness, but with you, there is patience. I do not understand your ways, but you know the way for me. After he speaks of this light, Simeon also hits a dark note. The child will bring about the falling and rising of many in Israel. He will divide the nation in two. Some will respond, others will oppose. Jesus will be a sign that will be spoken against. In other words, Simeon says, this will not be a smooth road. And those who identify with Jesus will experience pain because many will reject him. Indeed, even Mary, or especially Mary, Mary will experience pain. By saying that Mary's soul will be pierced by a sword, Simeon is saying she will feel a mother's pain as she watches her son go through incredible rejection. In addition to Simeon, we are told there's another figure in the temple courts. Her account is not long, but we're given a few biographical details. Anna is very old. She had lived with her husband uh, for seven years after their marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. We're told that she never left the temple. She worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. When I think about Anna, I think about how along with Simeon, she stands as the one who is watching and waiting. On a large scale, Anna is Israel waiting in the silence to hear from God. But I also think about on a personal scale, she is all the seasoned saints who pray, who cry out to God in expectation. Finally, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus returned to Nazareth. We're told that Jesus grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Now, as with the rest of the Christmas story, I don't know about you, but I am struck by the ordinariness of this, the earthiness of this scene. This child who Simeon just said is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel grows in every way, just like all kids do. God's love is an earthy love, even as it is from heaven. 
It's an ordinary love, or if you prefer, an extraordinary, ordinary love. (laughs) In the season of Christmas, we hear all these big words, salvation, righteousness, adoption, judgment, revelation, consolation, and redemption. Let's hold on to just a few of these in the precious next few days of Christmastide. For those who have spent your life waiting, hear the good news. You have been saved and God has been faithful to you. This means God does not leave you in your stuff. He is with you even now. He's not flighty. He's not here one day and gone the next. He will see you through. Hear the good news. You've been adopted into a family. Surrounding you today are your brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, a weird uncle or two. But they're not just around you in this space and time. They are a cloud of witnesses throughout time and space, receiving the Holy Eucharist with you today. Hear the good news. You've been given a new name. You share the name of Christ. The old identities, the narratives, the stories that have been told about you, they don't have the final word. Hear the good news. Light has come. This means revealing the dark places so that they might be healed. This does not mean everything will be smooth. For Christ's presence brings about rising and falling. The light also allows for pain, but it's not torture quite the opposite. Like the pain of a surgeon's scalpel or disinfectant, your healing is near. May we see the light. May we be changed by the light. And may we see salvation before our very eyes. Amen.